Hello, you're listening to episode five of the NeuroDescent podcast. I'm Nick Subzarelu. I'm a neurodivergent theorist and scholar. And I'm Molly Friesenberg. I'm a nonprofit professional and work in um, education and race equity and happen to be married to this guy. In our first season, Molly and I are exploring the history of demons, demonic possession, and exorcism. Because obviously, those are the number one mental health things you think of. Sure, yeah. You might be wondering why we're talking about that on a mental health podcast. That would be completely reasonable. Um, and and there is a reason. I, I want... The reason is because I'm interested in how people understood mental illness, neurodivergence, or madness before the rise of modern psychiatry. So I'm interested in challenging the idea that modern psych psychiatry understands and deals with these issues in a superior way to other cultural practices that, that predated it. What? Anything in modern Western culture isn't better than everything that came before it? That is my premise, yes. Weird. So... I want us to consider how belief in demonic possession or other similar things might provide a useful way for people to understand madness, mental illness, or neurodivergence. So our first four episodes have been focused on the traditions of what we often call the West. In our first three episodes, we talked about societies in the Mediterranean region, and in the fourth one, we talked about England. For today's episode, we're going to branch out away from the West, and we're going to talk about the part of the world that we we know today as Japan. Cool. Something new. Right? Yeah. So part of my, in my inspiration for the season topic, right, came from the philosopher Michel Foucault. And Foucault was well known for critiquing psychiatry. And he wrote that due in part to psychiatry, modern man no longer communicates with the madman. Um, so, you know, that was this idea that the idea of mental illness makes us not take mad people or mentally ill people seriously. And Foucault was, was really focused on the West and Europe when he was developing these ideas. Um, but they've been taken up by other people since. And one of those people is historian Bernard Leitner, who wrote an article about the history of psychiatry in Japan. Ah, okay. Yeah, so Leitner draws on Foucault's ideas, and he writes, At what point in the history of Jap Japan did mental illness turn into a silent phenomenon, mm. so that the mentally ill are not spoken to, but spoken about? Since when did Japanese discourse think about mental illness in terms of a mere pathological state, rather than, for example, a magic religious experience? Interesting. So, interestingly, Leitner, you know, asks this question about um, about Japan, and he ends up answering it by saying that Japan came under greater influence from the United States and from other Western states in the 1800s, um, you know, forcibly came under greater influence by them. And he's, he, Leitner argues that it's during that time that European and American colonizers killed the magic <laughs> yes american forms of psychiatry um, entered japan and influenced the government and the people's ideas about mental illness madness or neurodivergence got it okay um before that though leitner does note that japanese people had other ways of understanding these things he mentions that during the heian period which is from 794 to 1185 AD. Okay. 
People believed in spirits or demons that could possess them and affect their health. Which we've certainly seen in what we've talked to up till, what, the 1400s. We've seen that represented in Western Definitely. culture, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. And this is, you know, actually a little bit earlier than the last, than our episode four, right? We're, ah, we're okay. focusing on 794 to 1185, a, a time period of from around 794 to 1185 AD. That's be that came before Marjorie Kemp, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, Leitner describes the Heian period as one in which most people believed in demonic possession. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talks about how they used this belief to deal with mental illness. He writes, These creatures were supposed to enter the bodies of human beings in order to haunt their souls or to deliver divine messages. For treatment, or more precisely for mediation, a priest from a nearby temple, or sometimes from a temple specializing in exorcism, was habitually consulted, but rarely a doctor. This conception of patients being possessed sheds light on the approach to insanity at the time. Insane persons represented a chance to communicate with divine beings. Sometimes they were seen as mediums revealing acts of gods. The crucial point is that people listened to these persons and took their discourse seriously interesting so in this episode we're going to focus on exorcism rituals that were used in japan's heian period which is sometimes referred to as Jap japan's medieval period um, as we'll see that we have a number of written records from the heian period that were composed by men and women um, who were heian society's aristocrats got it so we should keep in mind that we're very much having the upper class view absolutely here. yes um, we will see that those aristocrats received care from exorcists who practiced their craft in order to help keep people safe from evil spirits. The aristocrats of Heian believed that they could be effect they could be afflicted by evil spirits, and they counted on local exorcists to help keep them safe and to remedy them in the event of possession. Okay, I assume that means lower class people also could get possessed, but. Yeah, and I mean, they may, might have sought the services, but from what I've been looking at, it does seem that the exorcists are getting Very paid. Very much there for the <laughs> um, so class. So, you know, well, they're being paid directly by the, their, um, by the aristocrats. Got it. So the they're stories. not even like an independent merchant that people could hire their service. They're like, these are rules that we built into our court for our... Well, no, they don't necessarily live at the court. I'm saying that, like, at, after they give their rituals, they get paid, like, per, as a per-ritual kind of fee, it seems. And that's, um, that's why I'm suggesting that perhaps, you know... Other people could couldn't be, afford their services. Right, they might not have been able to afford it. So, I want to now talk about these exorcism rituals that they used in Heian. So Nobumi Iyanaga, a scholar of Buddhist studies, wrote an article called Healing by Spiritual Possession in Medieval Japan. And so in it, he describes a typical exorcism ritual during the Heian period. Um, and so that ritual goes something like this. So first of all, the family calls for an exorcist. The exorcist arrives accompanied by a medium who is usually a young woman. Mm, okay. The exorcist recites a mantra and makes a ritual gesture with his hand. This allows him to identify himself to his primary deity. 
and the exorcist calls on this deity's help in the exorcism. Hmm, interesting. So they're calling on other deities to do the heavy lifting. So again, that example of there's both good and bad entities out there. Absolutely. So while the exorcist chants and prays, the helper spirit works to try to dislodge the demon that is possessing the patient. Okay. So that's the that's the deity that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. That's dislodging the other spirit, the demon. So if they are successful, the ill-causing spirit will be dislodged and forced into the medium's body. Uh, bummer roll. <laughs> so the once that happens, the exorcist will then question the evil spirit or the uh, the demon who speaks through the medium. And the exorcist asks what or who the spirit is and why it entered the patient. And then the ill-causing spirit returns to its realm, but it could always return. Interesting. Okay, so I found two things really interesting there. One is that it is usually a young woman that's this medium. Because, like, yeah. on one hand, I'm like, oh, the women, like, play an active role in this. And then I'm like, oh, they're just literally there to be a body to be possessed. That's um, that's a real, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that. Because on the one hand, they are getting, like... You know, clearly they're not going to get the social accolades and maybe even the pay that the priest will get for doing his part here. Yeah. He's he's the exorcist, right? He's but doing the all important hand waving. She has such an important role in the whole situation because she's answering for the demon. Like, yeah. Well, the, which is the second interesting thing there was that we intentionally talked to the demon. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like some of the other things we've listened to, like they do talk to the demon but more by happenstance than like making a specific part of the ritual like now we talk to the demon yeah. like that's that's interesting if we think about like saint jerome mm -hmm. and hilarion's demons i mean the demon they talked but only because we were yelling back and forth and right get out phase yeah well and i mean like the demon actually like is who pops out and like says hey Get away from me, exorcist, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, it's more fighting back than we're like, hey, what you doing here, buddy? Right. And they can't be trusted, according to St. Jerome at all, really. So, like, the things they say... There was no point to listen there's to There's no need to listen to a demon because they're just liars. Yeah, which is interesting you say that because, like, to me, again, the main theme being if we listen... Exactly. ...to the people who are suffering from this, I... I saw that in Jesus's version of exorcism and I didn't see that in Hilarion or St. Jerome's version of exorcism. Yeah. So again, this feels like it's a, a version that is doing more of that listening and interacting. So that scholar Nobumi Yanaga um, actually tells us a, a bit more about this exorcism ritual. And he points out that the purpose of this ritual is not to destroy the demon or the huh. possessing spirit, but to save it. Ooh, save it. Not even mm -hmm. like just send it home, but save yeah. it. Yeah, so he, he's looking, he looks at a historical document, an instruction manual for exorcists that was written around 1200 AD. Uh -huh. And Yanaga explains that the instructions begin with a warning to the exorcist. It says, the practitioner must be well-versed in the gist of the rite and full of compassion in regard to the spiritual demon. It is to save this demon and not to harm him that he must perform the ritual. Okay. Wow. 
It yeah. seems like a very different perspective towards demons. It is. And I mean, like, the whole word demon seems almost inappropriate. So we're, like, using From this... a Western perspective of what right, a demon is. Right. Like, yeah. for us, what a demon is is so clearly... Negative. Evil and negative. We saw that in the, um, you know, especially in, like, Marjorie Kemp's episode where people accused her of being possessed by a demon and wanted to burn her. Yeah. It's like we want to take, you know... It's like taking the bug out of the house and back to its home rather than setting the traps to kill it. Yeah, well, and... and a weird metaphor. I mean, honestly, it seems to even have a bit of, um, especially, like, a what I think of at least as a Buddhist influence. Yeah, of, in like, every everything sentient gets... creature of any kind deserves this respect. Or not well, even sentient, sorry, I and mean, Buddhist, but... And can improve, you know, in their, like we can show them the way forward and they can huh. become better. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah. I mean, in, in a lot of ways it is. Um, I just wanted to draw attention to this word though, and, and tell us a little bit about what uh, Noriko Ryder, a scholar of Japanese language and literature says about this. So she wrote a book called Japanese demon lore. And she explains that the word demon is not really fully adequate for the purpose of describing the beings that she's interested in. Sounds about right. She writes, the Western adjective demonic, while the closest Western term to describe oni, which is the form of demons she's interested in, falls short of capturing the full idea of these creatures. And one of the ways is exactly the thing that we've been talking about already, which is that um, spirits and demons are not necessarily pure evil. Mm -hmm. In And, you know, earlier I think I even called the, you know, I even referred to an evil spirit, but that's... That's maybe just my Western mind uh, inserting the word evil in there because there's nothing to say that they are pure evil. Yeah. It almost just sounds like a spirit is is potentially a better yeah. thing to think of than a demon. Could be. Um, I, I The only reason I would, you know, the only reason demon for me is so important is because demons are the things that most commonly like possess us and, yeah. and take over our actions and our thoughts and things like that so let's say a little bit more about these mediums so the, the women you know i've already said that i think you know the women who served as mediums played a really important role in the exorcism ritual in particular they're the ones that speak for the spirits mm -hmm. I'm guessing they're not the ones who wrote any of the records that we get to see today though no not the not the mediums scholar of japanese studies Eva Lakich Parach wrote an article about the history of shamanism in Japan. And she focuses specifically on the role of women in these traditions. So she explains that in medieval Japan, almost all Buddhist priests had a shamanist by their side, whom they used in their exorcist rituals as a medium through which a vengeful spirit spoke and sent his messages. So Lakich Parach explains a couple of ways women were recognized as being shamanesses or mediums. Some of these women were seen as being possessed by or in contact with a spirit due to what the author describes as psychosomatic problems. Interesting. So she actually brings in that, like how we would have termed it today, probably. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, our modern contemporary idea of what's going on with them. So here's what she writes. The shamaness's first possession is sudden, and from that moment, her behavior and speech become strange. Although before the initiation, she will exhibit various psychosomatic problems, which will result in the announcement of her call. 
However, in order to be recognized by the community for her complete devotion to faith, she has to show the power of deity which possesses her through a specific action, such as by predicting an important event, by solving someone's problem, finding a lost object, or something else. So we identify them by acting a little cray, but until their cray is useful, they're not a medium. Yeah. More or less, that's... <laughs> just, just to rephrase. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and... and Interesting how vague we are and what, what, what the psychosomatic symptoms might be, because I'm having trouble imagining what exactly that would look like, but yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm not sure there's any particular ones, yeah. you know, it's just that, that they are, that they are seen as neurodivergent or, you know, mad or mm -hmm. mentally ill is, is often a prerequisite for them. Interesting. But again, like that's not in the terminology you hear. It's like not ill or negative. It's 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 the call. It's the call, and it's in being in tune to these other, yeah, to something that most people can't interact with. Yeah. So there, from the beginning, we're defining them very, very differently, differently. in terms of being differently abled, differently you know, abled, yeah, as opposed to a blight on society that needs chained in the graveyard <laughs> in iron. All right, so see the Jesus episode. <laughs> There's a pretty big amount of written literature from the Heian period. And interestingly, Nobumi Yanaga writes, The allegedly serene world of the Heian period literature is full of vis vociferations of demons and exorcists who fight at the bedside of ill aristocrats and imperial family members. So it was a pretty, it was a generally prosperous time in this area. And so it had more like recordings of day-to-day -day life kind of setting that's what you're saying i'm saying yeah the the heian was like the capital of the empire where all the aristocrats lived got it so and and it's their biggest problems at the time was demons and not famine and war right yeah i mean one of their biggest problems definitely and and yes probably the the brunt of famine and war being dealt with on the yeah. outskirts of the empire right yeah that they're benefiting from yes Yes. Um, so in other words, this literature from this time period often mentions exorcisms, and we're going to explore the writings of a couple of different authors. Uh, both of them are women. Ooh, yay. Both of them wrote about life in Heian. Okay, but they're not the mediums. They're not mediums, no. These two women are called Seishonigan and Murasaki Shikiru. Awesome. And both of them are aristocrats. They were court ladies or ladies-in-waiting, and they were both attendants to empresses. And Different they, empresses. They aren't different contemporaries. Different empresses. Okay. Well, they are contemporaries, actually, and they knew each other. Oh, interesting. And we know they knew each other um, because they seem to have been rivals. So Murasaki Shikibu and... Uh, or, or Murasaki wrote a scathing criticism of Shonagun, of oh. Say Shonagun, in her diary. So here's what she wrote. Lady Say Shonagun, a very proud person. She values herself highly and scatters her Chinese writings all about. Yet, <laughs> yet should we study her closely, we should find that she is still imperfect. She tries to be exceptional, but naturally persons of that sort give offense. I, I love that throughout all of this, one of my favorite themes is like, 
people just be people in. And no matter what time period it is, people would like you to know that their contemporaries are inferior. <laughs> and that's what they need to have written down. So she can so Murasaki concedes that uh Seishonigan is a gifted writer, but she also says she scatters her Chinese writings all about. That's so much shade right there. Uh, I don't is. even get the context yeah. of the shade, but I know it's so much shade. Let me <laughs> let me let me explain the shade. So Heian so in Heian, Chinese is or, or china and chinese writing and and philosophy is revered but it's kind, kind of, of masculine pretentious. pretentious and in like a masculine kind of way mm, okay so it was not seen as ladylike to write in chinese spreads her chinese writings everywhere i just want to say that to someone now <laughs> here's what scholar ellis kachidze explain says about the importance of writing including Chinese writing in Heian. By the 11th century, so by around 1000 AD, members of the aristocracy, male and female alike, were expected to be familiar with and able to refer to a vast canon of Chinese and early Japanese poetry, histories, and religious texts. They were also expected to reference, recite, and even compose poems off the cuff in conversations, a talent which consequently became Dang. central to love affairs, political maneuvering, and all social interactions. So this is like a highly literate, literary society. Yeah, and that both males and females are expected to be literate in that manner. Yeah, well, it, that that's very true. But I don't want to give the impression that it's like equal. <laughs> it's not, yeah. We're... So let's, I, I want to read you a little bit more Lest from... Lest us think we have equality. Right, right. <laughs> so, um... Let's let me let me read a bit from Murasaki Shikibu's diary in which she talks about her own early experiences learning to read Chinese. When my older brother was a boy, he was taught to read Chinese historical records, which is a like encyclopedia type work that's written in Chinese. The history of our yeah corner of the world. <clears throat> so, I listened sitting beside him and learning wonderfully fast, though my brother was sometimes slow and forgot. <laughs> Father, who was devoted to study, regretted that I had not been a son. But I heard people oh, saying... so often. But I heard people saying that it is not beautiful even for a man to be proud of his learning. And after that, I did not write so much as the figure one in Chinese. But the queen made me read to her the poetical works of Li Tai Po, and as she wished to learn them, I have been teaching her since the summer of two years ago, the second and third volumes of that collection, very secretly when none were present. So the fashion of the day is to be extremely literate and well-learned, but also not let anyone know that you're well-literate and well-learned, because... Especially if you're a that's woman. pompous and uncouth. Yep. Oh, that actually sounds... Right, Very right. contemporary, I must yeah. say. <laughs> wow. People just be peopling. <laughs> Nothing has changed. And, but, you know, I also want to draw attention to the fact that, like, there's an uneven kind of, you know, we see a bit of the gender roles emerging from that story. Yeah. You know, women are not equal to men. And even if they've literally demonstrated the skill, then we just have to lament they don't have a penis. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so this story from Murasaki's diary gives us some hint at the way in which Heian's gendered society operated. 
And I'm going to give us a little bit more about the uh, marriage practices of Heian. So historian Matthew Grubitz explains that marriages in Heian were polygynous and matrilocal. So Heian marriage was polygynous. This means that um, men were free to have many wives, women oh. were not. So polygyny is the most common form of polygamy. Got it. Heian marriage was also matrilocal, and that means that the man was expected to go live with the woman and her, and her family. An aristocratic man in Heian might maintain multiple residencies, including his own personal residence, along with joining each of his wives at theirs. Wow. Okay. And uh, this historian also points out that Heian marriages were often arranged for economic, political, and practical reasons. So this puts women in quite a vulnerable position. <laughs> you think? What, yes. Polygamy is often put women in a non-vulnerable position. Oh, that's not at all what I'm trying to suggest. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, historian Matthew Grubitz tries to explain this position. Um, he says, Men were freed from jealousy, for they could have whomever they pleased. Women, though, were prone to jealousy, for they were not afforded the power over sexual relations that men were. The Heian woman occupied a precarious position, uncertain of her lover's affection, uncertain of her own future, and fearful of rumors and abandonment. Dependence on men and a desire for security produced tension in the Heian woman and made it difficult for her to deal with complications resulting from the polygamous system. Interesting. Yeah, so I hope that we're going to see in these exorcism stories that this kind of emotional distress may be something that comes out in the exorcist Got it. It's probably often what type of, again, if we were putting this in the terms of modern healthcare, like this is what would be causing a lot of the mental situations that our women are seeking. Yeah, I mean, for. like, we don't use this term anymore, but this is, you know, pretty clearly something that might have been called hysteria yeah. at one time nowadays we have words like women having any legitimate problems equals just your mental health cray right. <laughs> borderline personality disorder is kind of a uh, good example of something that this might apply to um today that we might we might use that term for some of these women so now i want to get into some of the actual exorcisms that these two women murasaki shikibu and seishonigan wrote about so let's start with Seishonigan. Uh, she wrote and published a book called The Pillow Book, and it's, an, it's a collection of short stories and musings, basically. It's kind of similar to a diary in some ways. But it was intended for others more it, so. It definitely was, at least in the end, you know, intended to be read. She, she put it out there herself, so... I'm going to read to you a translation of to a our knowledge. True. Um, I'm going to read to you a translation of uh, one of the stories in it. Okay. Entry number 182. It provides a pretty full description of a an exorcism. Got it. All right. So here we go. In the main room was a four foot curtain of state. So I'll pause here and explain that. In Heian, among the aristocrats, uh, women would often be behind curtains of state, which kept them from being seen by men. 
Um, so there are all these curtains around in a, in a Heian uh Let's talk about house. a really visual reminder of how not equal we just are. Yes. So in the main room was a four-foot curtain of state, and in front of it, a round stool on which a priest was kneeling. He was in his early 30s and quite handsome. Over his gray habit, he wore a fine silk scarf. Altogether, the effect was magnificent. Cooling himself with a clove-scented fan, he recited the, the magic incantation of the thousand hands. I gathered that someone in the house was seriously ill, for now a heavy-built girl with a splendid head of hair edged her way into the room. Clearly this was the medium to whom the evil spirit was going to be transferred. She was wearing an unlined robe of stiff silk and long, light-colored trousers. When the girl had sat down next to the priest in front of a small three-foot curtain of state, he turned round and handed her a thin, highly polished wand. Then, with his eyes tightly shut, he began to read the mystic incantations, his voice coming out in staccato bursts as he uttered the sacred syllables. It was an impressive sight, and many of the ladies of the house came out from behind the screens and curtains and sat watching in a group. After a short time, the medium began to tremble and fell into a trance. It was awesome indeed to see how the priest's incantations were steadily taking effect. The medium's brother, a slender young man in a long robe who had only recently celebrated his coming of age, stood behind the girl, fanning her. So at this point in the story, we've got uh, the, the... So we've got the household women watching. We've got the male... Priest. shaman priest yeah. like doing the chanting and calling to his deity to help remove the spirit and them all witnessing this medium start changing her behavior as if the spirit is coming into her yeah yeah so everyone who witnessed the scene was overcome with respect it occurred to me how embarrassed the medium herself would feel to be exposed like this if if she were in her normal state of mind she lay there groaning and wailing in the most terrible way and though one realized that she was in no actual pain, one could not help sympathizing with her. Indeed, one of the patient's friends, feeling sorry for the girl, went up to her curtain of state and helped to rearrange her disordered clothing. So it's interesting. It's interesting how she speaks of reverence for this, right? Mm -hmm. In what is a very, I mean, vulnerable position. And yet, interesting that we only use women to be put in this exceedingly vulnerable position. <laughs> By 4 p.m., the priest had brought the spirit under control, and having forced it to beg for mercy, he now dismissed it. Oh, exclaimed the medium, I thought I was behind the curtains, and here I am in front. What on earth has happened? Overcome with embarrassment, she hid her face in her long hair and was about to glide out of the room when the priest stopped her and, after murmuring a few incantations, said, Well, my dear, how do you feel? You should be quite yourself by now. He smiled at the girl, but this only added to her confusion. Huh. So one thing that I've noticed there is that making the spirit beg for mercy, which is a little counter to what we heard the other scholars saying about it's about saving that spirit, too. Um, mm. But... I mean, that could be the, the translation yeah. that I'm reading from. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it could, it, it's not necessarily incompatible with, you know, getting them to change, Certainly, having no. them beg for mercy, I suppose. But again, this like dichotomy then of the, I like, I just can't imagine like this woman, the medium's role, like at a time 
where you're usually behind a screen to know that you were that vulnerable. Like that's yeah. kind of mind boggling to put themselves in that position. Yeah. I mean, like they seem to be the only ones who can give voice to these really strong feelings, you know, yeah. at all. Which also speaks generally to how we, I don't know, are, are women actually somehow more in touch with these other spirits or is our ability and happiness to call women hysterical, right? Or to call them like our, our more willingness in most societies, I feel like to call them crazy mm-hmm. part of why we assume they're more in touch with these. Like I don't, I, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. So anyway, at this point, the, in say Shonigan's story, the priest gets ready to go. Um, and he gets invited back by the, the aristocrats for the next day. Okay. You know, they try to get him to stay longer. He, he gets invited back and he, he basically says, you know, yes, I fear we're dealing with a very obstinate spirit hmm. and we must not be off our guard. I am pleased that what I did today has helped the patient. And so, you know, he's going to come back because the spirit seems obstinate. Uh, but they, it does seem like this was a success. Yeah. Which is really, you know, one of the things that that I, I find interesting about her diary is that while that was a successful story and a really helpful, like, example of what one of these might have looked like, she's also got unsuccessful exorcisms mm. in here. The other thing I noticed about this is that, like, again, like, they help the patient, right? So it is very much as that, like, healing is is highly defined, right in terms of that this is what's happening right now is a, a healing service um and yet it was also very community oriented in the sense that everyone was there and the actual patient wasn't there like in that actual space like they said someone in the house was sick and i have the sense that like the sick person is elsewhere in this home mm. um which is interesting because it's almost that is like, interesting i wonder if that she's actually there but just behind a curtain of state yeah but it's interesting to hear about like the community engagement here, mm-hmm. the hearing from the demon themselves here, and yet hear almost nothing of the actual patient. Yeah. It's the it's the medium who's giving voice to it. And, yeah. and you know, one of the things But that, not giving voice to the patient, giving voice to the demon. And yes, but I, I wanted to point out that I think it's really significant that she's a woman, um, and thus potentially able to give voice to the kinds of struggles more so you know that women might be going through Mm. versus a demon versus if we put a man in that position and had him try to explain or if the exorcist himself just told us what the demon was saying yeah um would the exorcist no i mean if we truly believe that he's in touch with the demon then i guess yes but if we think that that connection is somehow relying on his knowledge of the world or his experience of the world and somehow at least then then that's going to be limited by his manhood yeah huh that makes me just really curious to know more about like what were the ailments showing up as and what did the demons say (laughs) Mm, now mm. i'm like i want to know what the demon said so i know if it matters if it was gender (laughs) oriented or not that's fine so now I want to talk about Murasaki Shikibu's writing. Okay. And um, Murasaki is quite famous for having published The Tale of Genji. 
And she wasn't just throwing around Chinese writings like her contemporaries. That's right. She wrote this book. Them in... fighting words. So, so what is especially important about the tale of Genji is it is one of the earliest pieces of and most celebrated pieces of Japanese literature. Got it. So I want to look at how Murasaki talks about exorcists who are present at the time of a woman giving birth. Okay. So we're going to start with her diary. And um, in her diary, she talks about the childbirth of the empress that she's serving. Let me uh, read you a little bit from an article called Childbirth in Aristocratic Households of Heian, Japan, written by historian Anna Andreva. Uh, she says, in 11th century Japan, childbirth required the presence of many expert figures specializing in different systems of knowledge. One was undoubtedly a paradigm of ritual and religious doctrine, which specified that during childbirth, women were susceptible to attacks by malevolent spirits and ghosts. Manifestations of physical distress were often interpreted as interference by unseen malignant forces. Ultimately, events such as childbirth were commanded by clerics and astrologers whose authority at court as ritual specialists was seemingly far greater than their medical counterparts. Did they get a doctor too? Um, from what I've seen, yes. <laughs> yes, there's also a doctor present often. A, you know, a, a physician. Yeah. Um, so, Murasaki Shikibu was a court lady who served Empress Shoshi. In her diary, Shikibu recorded her observations of the Empress's pregnancy and childbirth. So I'm going to read you a passage where she describes the preparations that were taken for the, the birth. Okay. When day began to dawn, the decorations of the queen's chamber were changed, and she was moved to a white bed. All day long she lay ill at ease. Men cried at the top of their voices to scare away evil spirits. There assembled not only the priests who had been summoned here for these months, but also itinerant monks who were brought from every mountain and temple. On the east side of the screen were assembled the ladies of the court. On the west side, there were lying the queen's substitutes, possessed with the evil spirits. Each was lying surrounded by a pair of folding screens. So what we see in this is that as the birth draws nearer, Murasaki tells us that the ladies of the court were supposed to like lay there and be bait for evil spirits. Dang. So each of them is supported by a priest to protect them mm -hmm. so that they can do this, you know, so that they can be bait safely. So Murasaki tells us about the efforts that these people went to to protect the empress from evil spirits. She writes, One priest was overpowered with the evil spirit, and as he was in a too pitiable state, another priest went to help him. It was not because his prayer had little virtue, but the evil spirit was too strong. Another priest swore all night till his voice became hoarse. Most ladies who were summoned in order that the spirits might enter into them remained safe. And they were much troubled, thinking that it would be to the queen's advantage where they attacked. At noon, we felt that the sun came out at last. The queen was at ease. Wow. Okay. Wow. There's so much there. I, I guess sign of a good loyal court that the people were like, I'm upset that the, the spirit didn't attack me <laughs> to save my, my empress. Like, that's... Yes. Something's going good there with loyalty. <laughs> um, and so preemptive. Right? It's like not in response to, but it's like. Yeah, it's true. We know, like, 
again, the idea that like we know spirits take advantage of childbirth and we need to over prepare like, you know, without yep. there being something wrong necessarily. That's all really fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to tell us one more exorcism story. Okay. And this one is actually going to come from the tale of Genji, which as you remember is fictional. It's a fictional account, but it is very much based on Murasaki, you know, what Murasaki Shikibu would have seen being an aristocratic woman in Heian society. It's, it's a book about Heian society mm-hmm. and, and about the romantic exploits of Genji in particular. Who is a man a, a you know other figures that we could compare him to would be like don juan ah uh, he's a casanova yeah that that kind of thing so why do they always get books forget them <laughs> so as we're going to see in this story we get more detail about what the possessing spirit or demon actually says and what motivates it. Oh, good. That's what's been missing so far. Yeah, which, you know, kind of makes sense that we get that in this fictional account where it's kind of really dramatized for us. Um, So Murasaki explores the kinds of evils that might have caused demonic possession in Heian society. Mm -hmm. And she appears to be particularly concerned with how marriage and sexual politics may have affected women negatively ah so we finally find out what has actually been illing all these women mm, well, as opposed theoretically <laughs> or fictionally get, i think i think we see maybe arguably we see maybe one thing that murasaki shikibu might have believed um was causing this right um and certainly that would have you know been top of mind of, of women in the society as we talked about earlier so we're just going to talk about one part of the tale of Genji, which is a long book with lots of different romantic relationships and things. Um, this is specifically a moment when Genji's wife, Aoi, is possessed by the demon of one of his girlfriends. Man, this is not serving people. <laughs> so scholar April Sprague explains the relationships between Genji and these two women. Aoi and Rokujo. So Sprague writes, although Genji is reluctantly but definitively married to, to Aoi, he begins to conduct an affair with the graceful Rokujo Haven. However, Rokujo is not in a position to be treated lightly, and her exalted station demands that Genji, having consummated his relationship with her, publicly recognize her by marrying her. Ah, so it's not even like I mean, because they have this polygamous situation, it's not even that he was, like, cheating on his wife so much he just didn't treat the mistress well by marrying her because she was of such stature that she can't. Yeah, so so Aoi and Genji's relationship is not great, but um, his relationship with Rokujo is the one who is... Where he's really he's done really wrong strained. by societal standards. Right, so it says, not only does he fail to do this, so marry, marry her, her. But having finally won her over after a long period of her keeping her distance, he often fails to visit. People be people in. He often fails to visit at all. <laughs> oh, this jerk ghosted her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So while ordinarily there is little that a woman in Rokujo's position could do, in the fictional world of the tale of Genji, Rokujo has unconscious recourse to spirit possession in an attempt to right the situation. this is this is an excerpt from the tale of genji and in it murasaki describes the distress 
that Genji's disrespect causes Rokujo. So Lady Rokujo's sufferings were now far worse than in previous years. Though she could no longer endure to be treated as Genji was treating her, yet the thought of separating from him altogether and going so far away agitated her so much that she constantly deferred her journey. She felt too that she would become a laughingstock if it was thought that she had been spurred to flight by Genji's scorn. Yet, if at the last moment she changed her plans and stayed behind, everyone would think her conduct extremely ill-balanced and unaccountable. Thus, her days and nights were spent in an agony of indecision. She felt herself swirled this way and that by spasms that sickened her, but were utterly beyond her control. I, 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 did they, are you sure this is like ancient story? <laughs> she feels so modern and normal yeah, and relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so while Ro Rokujo is suffering like that, mm -hmm. Aoi is also suffering. Okay. So meanwhile, Princess Aoi become, became strangely distraught, and it seemed at times as though some hostile spirit had entered into her. The whole household was plunged into such a state of anxiety and gloom that Genji had not the heart to absent himself for more than a few hours. It was only very occasionally that he got even as far as his own palace. After all, she was his wife. Moreover, despite all the difficulties that had risen between them, he cared for her very much indeed. He could no longer disguise from himself that there was something wrong with her, in addition to that discomfort which naturally accompanied her, her condition. She's pregnant. And he was not in a state of great distress. Constant rituals of exorcism and divination were performed under his direction, and it was generally agreed that all the signs indicated possession by the spirit of some living person. Many... Oh, interesting. Living people. Mm -hmm. Many names were tried, but to none of them did the spirit respond, and it seemed as though it would be impossible to shift it. Aoi herself felt that some alien thing had entered into her, and though she was not conscious of any one definite pain or dread, the sense that the thing was there never for a moment left her. The greatest healers of the day were powerless to eject it, and it became apparent that this was no ordinary case of possession. Some tremendous accumulation of malice was discharging itself upon her. A, I find it fascinating that those ordinary cases of possession. Uh, <laughs> like, quite, <laughs> what? Because um, they all sound pretty dramatic, personally. <laughs> um, but I also heard in there things that I think we've been talking about looking for that I didn't necessarily hear in the other accounts that I think, to your point, also just speak to how one records their mm. limited view of real life versus being able to talk about fiction, but like how the patient themselves felt right mm -hmm. was in mm -hmm. there in a way that like I didn't hear in these other accounts. Um, but also like this idea of you talked about one of the things that I found unique was the, the need to heal the possessor. And this kind of situation really speaks to why that kind of mm -hmm. belief would be there, right? That it's, yeah, it is really a dual healing situation and not a, definitely just one evil spirit to get rid of for healing this person yeah definitely so at, at this point rumors are flying about whose spirit is possessing aoi mm -hmm. and rokujo's name emerges among the likely culprits mm -hmm. Obs. pretty obviously so later in the book um rokujo is concerned that 
indeed it might be her possessing Aoi. I just hate it when they don't know that I'm possessing others. So the book says, Rokujo remembered how one night she had suddenly, in the midst of agonizing doubts and indecisions, found that she had been dreaming. It seemed to her that she had been in a large, magnificent room where lay a girl whom she knew to be the princess Aoi. Snatching her by the arm, she had dragged and mauled the prostrate figure with an outburst of brutal fury such as in her waking life would have been utterly foreign to her. Since then, she had had the same dream several times. How terrible. It seemed then that it was really possible for one's spirit to leave the body and break out into emotions which the waking mind would not permit. That is kind of like, I don't know, it just sucks that she can like, you know... I've chosen to be a good person, and yet I'm attacking people in my sleep. Mm. It's a real lose-lose proposition. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one... I guess it speaks to the need for mental healing, whether or not yeah. you think you'll act on it. <laughs> one, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think like we're supposed to see that, right? Yeah. Like, I think from Murasaki Shikibu is showing us that that mm -hmm. sort of like lose-lose situation for women. Yeah, definitely. Um. So. Aoi is pregnant, as we've said, and the possession seems to affect the pregnancy. So the book says, Aoi's delivery was not yet due and no preparations for it had been made, when suddenly there were signs that it was close at hand. She was in great distress, but though the healers recited prayer upon prayer, their utmost efforts could not shift by one jot the spiteful power which possessed her. All the greatest miracle workers of the land were there, the utter failure of their ministrations irritated and perplexed them. At last, daunted by the potency of their incantations, the spirit that possessed her found voice, and weeping bitterly, she was heard to say, Give me a little respite. There is a matter of which Prince Genji and I must speak. Got it. So the spirit has now called for Genji to come. Theoretically via... through a medium. Well, yeah, but in this case, the medium is just kind of thrown out, yeah, it seems. Yeah. Like, in this fictional account, we don't have the medium. Okay, so Genji shows up, comes to Aoi, and tries to comfort her. But the person speaking seems not to be her. The spirit tells him, stop these prayers a while, they do me great harm. And drawing Genji nearer to her, she went on. I did not think that you would come. I have waited you till all my soul is burnt with longing. She spoke wistfully, tenderly, and still in the same tone recited the verse, Bind thou, as the seam of a skirt is braided, this shred that from my soul despair and loneliness have sundered. Man, oh. the amount of women's mental health care that would be less necessary if men would just do better. Yeah. Really be amazing. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you know, she re she says this verse that, that I... I'll paraphrase as simply like, hey, fix what you broke. Right? <laughs> so Genji sees this and he's amazed, right? He's... My actions have consequences? He's not even sure he really believed in demonic possession yet. So here's what the book says. Once or twice, Genji had heard people suggest that something of this kind might be happening, but he had always rejected the idea as hideous mm. and unthinkable believing it to be the malicious invention of some unprincipled scandal monger, and had even denied that such possession ever took place. Now he had seen one with his own eyes. Ghastly, unbelievable as they were, such things did happen in real life. Controlling himself at last, he said in a low voice, I am not sure who is speaking to me. Do not leave me in doubt. 
her answer proved only too conclusively that he had guessed right. It was the spirit of Rokujo. That's an interesting reminder, too, that it's, as much as we know, like, when we think about our modern context, we know that, like, there is no, like, monolith, right? Like, we can't talk about Christians even believing, like, one thing, like, yet it's so easy historically to assume, like, yeah, everyone was on board with this. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, like, that even in this time, like, she needs to, like, even in writing fiction that you want to illustrate that, you know, these are not believers, like, coming to this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So after Genji talks with the spirit of Rokujo, Oi quickly gives birth to a child. Um, but this does not end the possession. So Aoi suddenly started up and bore a child. For the moment, all was gladness and rejoicing. But it seemed only too likely that the spirit which possessed her had but been temporarily dislodged, for a fierce fit of terror was soon upon her as though the thing, whatever it was, were angry at having been put to the trouble of shifting so that there was still grave anxiety about the future. So Genji didn't fix what was broken. So Genji hasn't fixed what was broken, and not long after this, Aoi dies. Dude, even after you were told what the problem was, you didn't go, like, make amends? <sighs> Men. So that is the possession of Aoi. That's, the, that's our story from the tale of Genji. Wow. It's fun to have the fictional um, version to go with it, because I think it fills in so many of the details that you are, like, mm -hmm. longing for <laughs> in the realistic accounts. I think so. Yeah. Um, but it really, I, it, does, it does solidify a lot of the things in the, again, especially the, like, the healing nature of it and not the just, like, fighting demons nature, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really emphasized in that in the fictional story as well as how the societal ills play out in individual mental health capacities, you know? Definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is super important to note about this is how this female medium gives voice to these demons. And, and I think it's possible that being a woman herself, she's tapped into kinds of discourses about women's lives mm. and and about how how their situations might be um you know how they might feel constantly vulnerable to being raped how they might be feel constantly um out of control out of, of control. their own lives right. their own and, and they may you know as a as a female medium they may be much better at giving voice to that and that may have been a sort a way of listening to those that source of distress that otherwise wasn't being spoken yeah right because even it may have been spoken between women but even there you know fierce rivalries might have kept it bottled up pretty intensely yeah and and both the use of the 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 female mediums which i'm still pretty pro-con about that but um but just the idea at all that you would ever listen to the demon, right? Gives space for hearing some of those things in mm -hmm. a way that a culture that's not interested in listening to the inflicted, or in this case, the inflictor, which is still kind of feels like a bit of a cop out of listening to the actual patient, but okay. Um, but like that, that does make space for those in ways that a society that is only interested in the ill shutting up mm -hmm. um, would never hear. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, you say like, it's a, it's kind of a cop out, not just listening to the patient, but like with the, is the patient prepared to say what's 
potentially bothering them out loud, you know? Mm, yeah. I mean, that's a real question, I think. If we move away from demonic realism in this and view these mediums as uh, women who put themselves intentionally in this, again, if we took away from demonic realism and thought that that wasn't happening, then we could even more think about a woman who's placed herself to speak for the, you know, ills of women can't bring up. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we actually have to jettison demonic realism for that, though. Like, I think we can say that, like, this woman maybe still believes in demons, but believes that since she's a woman, she's in better contact with them, having experienced the kinds of uh, experiences that women in her society go through. Yeah, and I guess that's what gets me to like this, like, ooh, how do I feel about this, you know, fem these female, not that it's my job of how to feel about this ancient practice, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but whether or not we're accepting demonic realism really changes that, right? Because, like, the women are more of a, these mediums in particular, more just a vessel and nothing else, like, if we really are viewing it through the lens of demonic realism, and that's where... I tend to view it a lot more negatively, I feel like, through that. And maybe that is, again, my Western, like, all-on-or-off kind of view. Yeah, I do I do feel like that that's a limited interpretation of demonic realism. I mean, I feel like pe someone could subscribe to demonic realism and still feel that they somehow... Are positively impacting right. this communication, even if they are more vessel than sure. interpreter. I mean, like they—they're claiming to have a connection to something, and I don't—I don't think that they necessarily have to just claim that their words are being transmitted from somewhere without their control. Yeah. That's a—that's like its own whole interesting question. I'm like. Yeah, it is. Is medium healer or empty vessel? You know, like. Absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting question. I—I I think that. Um, my my sense is that probably there were lots of different interpretations of you know for each of these people interpretations yeah. of how they affected things yeah like, again back to the this isn't a monolith as i would like to <laughs> believe when looking at a society back in sure, history sure. um anyway any final thoughts no very interesting and interesting for all the many differences how many parallels there are to to yeah. the other perspectives we've been looking at for sure anyway so that's all we have for this episode but next time we're going to continue looking at east asia and we're going to come up uh, we're going to look at what i think is a really exciting topic thunder magic Ooh, that sounds fun <laughs> thunder magic so in the meantime i want to invite our listeners to check out our website um, which you can reach by going to neurodescent.com. Um, there you'll find information about the open access sources we use for this episode and for all of our episodes. Um, I invite you to read and check out these articles uh, on your own. Finally, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're using. So until next time. See you soon. Bye.